Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. We're so happy to have you back with us for another episode. And this is a super special one. Welcome to our 150th episode. Are you kidding me? And as a special, you know what? To me, it feels like a special treat. You know what, listeners? I'm going to assume that's going to be a special treat for you, too. We are having our first 100% non-binary episode. If I, ha- if I could drop my mic, I would drop it. And then Kate would be like, why are you dropping my mics? But still... Woo! Non-binary episode. I am so fucking pumped. In that vein, I cannot wait to introduce our special guest host today. That is the lovely Craig Hale. Craig, thank you so much for being here with us. Hi. Exactly. It's like oops, all MBs. Guess we did that. Got some Captain Crunch going on here. Uh, yeah, I'm so excited to be here today. Uh, it's been a little while, and yeah, I'm really happy that you asked me to join you. Thank you so much. You know, we've got Monica and Sarah are moving, and so we're kind of recording episodes out of order, all over the place. So, and then I'm move. You know, it's a whole thing. But we are so pumped to have you back. Craig, you are the tits. So listeners, you will remember Craig from episode 94, Black Stories Across Decades. That was from our Pride 2021 celebration, which was super freaking cool. And we talked Far Sector, Lovecraft Country. Like we got into it. We like, we talked about a lot and it was the best time. So I'm just ecstatic to have you back. And I know you've got someone to introduce too. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, today uh, we have a, uh, you know, writer and all-around badass. We have Nadia Shemes, and Nadia is here and has written, let's see, we've got Squire, which is um, a graphic novel, and we've got Miss Marvel, Stretched Thin, and the thing that I'm so excited to talk about, which is where Black Stars Rise. So, um, Nadia, yeah, would you love to, you know, say hello to the people? Let's get those air horns going. <laughs> yeah, first, first, I have to act the air horn. <laughs> We're like, first 100% non-binary episode, it is just 100% air horns, actually. Air horns, yeah. <laughs> Well, as you know, that's our call. Um, we yes. just kind of do air horn noises, and then we all just kind of flock together. Yeah, it's it's just yeah, it's like, it's like a it's a it's a mating call. It's like yeah, it kind of works all over. It's like forget about it. In it's like it's like the mama bird like finding the baby chicks like in the crowd. You know, it's yeah, just like, it's how we all flock toward each other. It's like, oh my God, I'm sorry, the NBs, they're calling. And you just run. Yes, I must leave you now. Yeah. Oh, wow, I'm already crying. So I think this is going to be quite a conversation today. <laughs> Nadia, just if there's anything you want to add from what Craig's awesome introduction was, what would you want to share with our listeners? Yes. Hello, uh, everyone. I have been, this is my second time on the podcast and I'm very excited to be here. Um, the last time I was here, I think it was actually, we recorded before Squire had actually come out, but we were talking about Squire, if I remember correctly. <laughs> and this book at that time, I was bringing it up because the this book, uh, Where Black Stars Rise, also came out in 2022. Uh, so it was like, yeah, we recorded before I had two, but before both of these books came out, I think the first time. So it's really fun to come back post- post-published. I mean, yeah. Okay. Well, and, and, you know, listeners, if you haven't listened to that episode or you have, Nadia joined us for episode 126, Reflecting Worlds That Reflect Me. I'll have links to both Craig and Nadia's episodes in the show notes. I will probably forget that by the end of the episode, but I'm telling you now, because I already put the links 
in my organization <laughs> software. I know I will. Um, I This one I can guarantee. But Nadia, that's a great place to start. I mean, the reception for Squire has been huge. I would love to hear what that experience has been like because it's been such a close-to-your-heart project. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know me, so Squire is a young adult graphic novel um, that I co-created with Sarah Alfagi. And um, it's a Middle Eastern fantasy book about a young girl named Isa who joins the military in hopes of getting citizenship and kind of a better life for herself, but soon has to confront kind of the more propagandistic issues of the empire and the fact that ultimately the common good that they're working for doesn't actually include her. So um, that's what Squire is about. You've got and, that elevator uh, pitch down pat, Nadia. That was, that was, <laughs> I was like, damn, that's all the notes. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because like, yeah, I think I've gotten really good at that now because I, before I would be like, I want to talk about everything that Squire is. But I think at this point, it's like, I've had to explain what Squire is so many times that I'm like, okay, I got two sentences, which is probably, this is not going to be what happens for where Black Stars Rise because I, <laughs> where Black Stars Rise is, I always, I never know what to say about that. A real mind fuck. <laughs> like, you're like, that's it. I'm like, yeah, basically. <laughs> I'm like, so if I wrote Squire in 2019, I I wrote Where Black Stars Rise in 2020, and you can really oh, tell damn. that. Oh, damn, yeah. <laughs> you can truly tell. And it's funny, yes, so I should mention that, that like Squire was in development for four years, and Where Black Stars Rise was development in what, for like, what, three to two, maybe? Um, so it was a much like, I mean, it's a much shorter book. Squire is like over 300 pages, Where Black Stars Rise is about like 130. But, um, and it's more of a graphic novella than anything. And it's for different audiences. You know, Squire is YA, where Black Stars Rise is an adult horror book. But, um, and it's really funny that they came out in the same year because they're two completely opposite ends of a spectrum of, of work I'm interested in. Uh, but yeah, so Squire had a, a, you know, Squire won the Harvey Award. Uh, that was incredible. That was like one of the, you know, craziest, biggest moments uh, ever. I got to wear, I'm Palestinian. I got to wear kafia. Uh, up there that was that was really wild that meant a lot to my family I bet that's so cool yeah I mean it was on so many lists it was I just felt like there was really deserved buzz around it because obviously I'm like obsessed with Squire obviously Squire does some really important work around how do we deal with empire I, I remember a lot of our conversation was about you know, how does Empire use propaganda to convince us that, you know, they're working for our good, even when we can see they're not? Like, what does it mean to be drawn between those those poles? Yeah. And then we got to talk about characterization and, and how rich it was. So I'm just, I'm so pleased that it has been so well received. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, I... Congratulations. Thank you. I really... Yeah, Squire lived with with Sarah and myself, you know, by ourselves for so long. I think that by the time it came out, it was almost like getting to kind of look over it again with fresh eyes because we it was kind of like our our quiet thing that we were so used to only a few people caring about, which was like the two of us and maybe our editor. Um and uh and then it became a thing that like so many people reacted to and it felt really validating and really incredible to know that this is like that essentially it's like, no, we're right. This is an experience that a lot of people have um, when when living in empire, when your existence is like contrary to empire. Yeah. Um, it, this is this is what it is. And I'm, I'm so happy to hopefully have found some healing. I mean, you know, my own, I, I found out recently that I have a, a seven-year-old cousin named Layla. And the thing about Squire is I put all my cousin's name in the, in the book, like in background kind of characters and stuff. And because she was mentioned in chapter one, she is like the number one Squire fan. Oh. You know? And it's so cute. She's seven. She loves it. It's adorable. But the thing about Layla is I remember a time where when she would hear Arabic, she would be like, no Arabic, no Arabic. Because, and we didn't know why. We just, like, one day she just stopped wanting to hear Arabic. And it really, like it made me so sad because she was like seven and I knew that that was coming from somewhere that I didn't, you know, who who knows where, but it was coming from somewhere. So to have her click with Squire, I was like, yeah, maybe this kid is gonna, you know, maybe avoid some some pitfalls that I couldn't when I was that young. So I'm just like, you know, that's kind of 
that kind of almost like that experience of hearing about my own cousin kind of going through that made me be like, okay, like this is the the summation of all I ever really wanted for the book. So I know that I know that I did that. Oh, that's lovely. Wow, what a personal testament. Yeah. When you were talking about the, you know, kind of universality of that that struggle of you know, living in a place where you, you know, want to have better for yourself and, you know, have better for your life. And for a lot of people, the only way to do that is through, you know, this navigating these oppressive systems of, like you said, empire. And so I was like, oh, that sounds vaguely familiar. <laughs> um, <laughs> as someone who had like, you know, military recruiters at their high school like exactly on a weekly basis and you know has seen so many people go through like you know the military so that way they could like pay for college and all of that kind of stuff where it is like yeah it's it's it is a level of you know propaganda to uh lure people into this like work for the empire and it's something that people want to do to better their lives and at the same time are conflicted about their part that they play in that. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's, yeah, like I had, I had mentioned that like, yeah, growing up, I grew up in a really Arab neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, But with there, you know, after 9-11, you know, we, we all felt the effects, so the psychological effects in the neighborhood of what, like what had happened. But um, there were recruiters constantly. There were flyers. There was just, it was, you know, I know so many people. And that's the thing is a lot of the kids of Squire, like their journey is not necessarily like, I def- I love the military. I want to join the military as much as it is like, I want a better life. And while they're there, the military sells them that not only are they there for a better life, they're part of something bigger. Like that's the indoctrination. The, the cycle doesn't start just with nationalism. The cycle starts with like, Im- forced poverty. Yeah. I forget which politician said it, but they pretty much said the quiet part out loud when, mm-hmm. you know, all of the discussion around, uh, you know, student loan debt forgiveness was going around. They were they literally just came out and said, well, how will we recruit people into the military if we can't, you know, the, hold yeah, like the, the threat of student debt over their head to get them to come to us? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, and and actually that's something that kind of connects Squire and where Black Stars Rise is that where Black Stars Rise similarly, I think, was me dealing with maybe on a more personal level, but like on a smaller level and like it just kind of like what happens when you engage with, I guess, the view of someone who doesn't see you as a person. Like what happens when you look at yourself through their eyes? And that was a, a big thing that um, that inspired kind of my version of Carcosa. Um, for, and so, yeah, both of them are about like, I guess, you know, like navigating these systems where you're forced to give up something. And sometimes that's your humanity, you know, most times it's your humanity. So, (laughs) yeah. So I think that's a, a, like the tying thread between those two very different projects is that it's kind of about like navigating, you know, navigating like a, a navigating systems that are not designed to actually serve you necessarily. Or viewpoints. You, you know? just did my right. job for me, Nadia. You're like, let me let me go ahead and segue us. I'm like, oh, dang, okay. I'll just follow. <laughs> um, no, I mean, that's perfect. I think I really feel that in in where Black Stars Rise. It's such a, it's such an arresting book. And I think it is, I really want to hear about your experience working with Marie Enger. I mean, there are fucking mm-hmm. rules. There are rules. And they're, and the lettering. Did, Marie did the lettering as well, correct? Yes, Marie oh did do all the lettering. Oh my God, the lettering. Yeah, Marie does their own lettering and they, um, I think that their their lettering skills are just like out of, I mean, their art skills are out, out of this, this world. world. Out of the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, this is the format this this story had to be told in, right? Like, I can't imagine 100%. It in someone else's art. We needed Marie no, to take no. us to it. And it, yeah. it 100% was it is not a project that couldn't exist could exist without mm. Marie. It was, I mean, even from the very beginning, right? Uh, Marie and I, conce- very similar to the story with Sarah and myself, as you know, Marie and I conceptualized this together. Mm. Um, so we, uh, like, we had a, a bunch of conversations up front about, like, you know, kind of the the world of Carcosa and um, like our characters and what they kind of what are their what do they go through and, you know, what are their arcs? And we didn't want to shy away from the horror trope of the fact that, like, 
bad things happen to good people and they cannot be reversed. Um, you know, we we didn't want to flinch, I suppose. We wanted to... And, you know, also another reason is that, well, first of all, the whole thing started twofold because of Marie. First, because uh, the thing that inspired this entire conversation that led to the project was uh, Marie did an illustration of the King mm. in Yellow. Um, just like this kind of very jagged, um, as is their style, like this incredibly kind of jagged, like black and yellow sharded faced creature. And I was like totally obsessed. And we started talking about the King in Yellow and how much we enjoyed it. And um, kind of what we enjoy about Eldritch Horror and what we didn't enjoy. Uh, Marie also then kind of took me on like I was it was Marie and also um, a friend of mine who is a comics writer and um, also a friend of the podcast Danny, Danny Lore. Lore Danny Lore was the one who oh. yes Danny Lore incredible you know comics and writer extraordinaire Danny Lore uh, put Hammers on Bone by Cassandra Kaw in my hands and around that same time also recommended where um, The Ballad of Black Tom by uh, Victor Laval and Marie also recommended uh, The Ballad of Black Tom. I read it, life-changing, completely life-changing, completely had me reassess my relationship with Lovecraft's work and, you know, kind of what I liked about it and what about it I didn't like. And and Marie had already been doing some of that work in their self-published Photogen and Loathing, um, kind of some of that work about, like, you know, that stoner, it was like a self-published stoner comedy <laughs> that's kind of like, dude, where's my car? But, you know... <laughs> in like Lovecraft, (laughs) in like a Lovecraft, like (laughs) fucked up world. And it's incredible, right? It's like an incredible series. That's how I found Marie's work in the first place. Totally fucking loved it. I actually edited one of the issues, (laughs) I think issue two um, for Marie. And so, um, yeah, so then, uh, you know, Marie had already been doing that work. I was following Marie's work. Marie gave me recommendations. We started talking about all these things and that kind of led to this project um and you know just kind of like talking about what we liked conceptualizing and and we did a lot of that work and then it came time to kind of part part and I I wrote the script and Marie uh did the art and Marie did um so much like abstract conceptualizing and the reason that it had to be Marie's art was because like well one obviously Marie was there uh as a co-creator of the story as well Marie is a co-author but um it's just no one else could make Carcosa feel like I like it needed to feel, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I'm like, okay, I have 63 follow-up questions. Uh, sorry, sorry, Mary, <laughs> if you don't get to say anything. Just kidding. Um, but something I want to come back to with, with Marie's incredible lettering and, and art is there's this point in the in the graphic novel where reality is shifting really quickly and the main character Amal doesn't really seem fully aware that it's shifting, mm-hmm. but yeah. if you're if you're scouring over every uh, you know center meter of the art like I am, you start to go on a scavenger hunt and you start to see, oh my god, the world's trying to warn Amal, and that and it's is showing all up. Marie. Oh my god, Marie, get the that fuck is all out. Marie. Yeah, no. So the thing is, is that like, yeah, I. Uh, yeah, no, that the way that Marie constructed the world to almost like pre-hint and warn them all, like her kind of fucked up inner, inner Carcosa, like everyone, we kind of were thinking like everyone experiences kind of their own Carcosa, but like the Carcosa also like overlaps with people, also, I guess like Elden Ring. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, so, so like, yeah, but um. Yeah, the way I would say that, like the the world building of Carcosa was was almost all Marie. Like that was, and that was also something like I I do not need to intervene in Marie's process there because that is like that is their bread and butter. They are such abstract thinkers. They are so non Euclidean. Like it's it's exactly what it's it's beyond what I could. You know, this is why when we have the conversations about writers and artists, like this is beyond what I could do. I, it's more, it's beyond what I could like pre guess that Marie would do in the art. You know what I mean? And that's like why, you know, that's why Marie's like the more important part of this book. You know what I mean? 
Well, yeah. I think this is something I've noticed with you. And and I'm going to be honest, like a handful of other folks who are, let's say, solely on the writing side is mm-hmm. this this sort of rejection of the way that comics really treat the creative team where it's like the writer is God and everyone else is like their minions. But it's actually mm-hmm. saying, no, we are co-creating. Together, Mm -hmm. this is ours. Definitely. And I I think that's the move we need in comics because artists are getting way too, I mean, taken advantage of, treated like shit. I mean, you, you're, you, you all know you're here. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a real, it's a real kind of disappointment because I think that it's a misunderstanding of like, I, when I'm writing, you know, when I'm writing a script, I'm writing a conversation between myself and my artist. I'm not like writing a definitive guide. I am, like, I personally try to be a visual thinker. I try to, like, think of really creative ways to lay out information and dialogue. But the thing that I'm most interested in is telling my co-creator, like, the emotional beats that this character is going through and what I am trying to invoke and seeing the way that they interpret that. Because they are then like taking my script and reinterpreting it into a visual language that is beyond my skills. Um, And the visual, you know what I mean? So like, it's like they are doing a whole translation job, basically. Um, And and it's it's such a skill to do it well. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so like, as much as a skill, you know, good plotting is, good dialogue is, as much as a skill of like, I tell new writers all the time to thumbnail their own scripts because it doesn't matter if it looks good or not. What matters is that you start to think visually. Um, even if you can't draw, you have to think visually as much as you can. But you also, that's because you need you need to understand what you're asking of your co-creator. You need to understand like, hey, I'm asking for too many things to happen in one panel or I'm asking for too many things to happen on one page. Or, you know, you can't be like... You can't look at your script and be like, okay, this is God. This is gospel. No, your script is a changeable thing. It's going to change from the version you have to the final version because it's going to go through the translation process of your co-creator. And you need to trust your co-creator's artistic ability and vision to do that. So Marie had to be the artist because Marie's the only person who I wanted to translate this world. And before we started, I even asked, I would ask questions like, what do you like? And Marie likes landscapes. So, Car- you know, Carcosa has a lot of open landscape shots because I know that that's like, that's something that they excel at and like. So like, why not rely on those then for mood and atmosphere, you know? So like, that's kind of, you know, I I try to take the collaboration process seriously, you know? I think that it's done really well. I, I love to the way that, there are moments where, as as he was talking about, where the world is trying to warn them all before going into Carcosa about the danger. Mm-hmm. And even before that, I I was like reading through, and at first I was kind of like reading in like dim lighting, and the like the contrast on some of like the letters, like when they're in the like when they're being spoken in terms of like voiceover, are yeah. like in darkness yeah and so it's like oh like i have to like turn my lights on and like really pulls you into the panels it really pulls you into like reading like what is happening and then pulls you into the world and when i didn't even realize it until essie said that about the world warning them all because i was like who's talking here? <laughs> because I remember seeing that happening before and being like, yeah, who's talking here? And then it just clicked now that as he said that. And I really love that. Uh, not only that, but just the way that perspective changes. I really was expecting this to be like from Yasmin's point of view when I first started with the first few pages until that flip where we get Yasmin leaving and Amal is like the one that's now centered. Mm -hmm. And I just, I love how that just like very slight subversion of like what I was expecting at least. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, like I think the, um, I think that there was like a lot of boundary pushing in terms of like how clear, I guess like, because we, we kind of have expectations 
of of kind of comics. And I think that's something that I love so much about Marie's work is that like there is so much detail, there is so much attention given to every single space of that panel. Um, so that like the panel is not, and the words are not kind of separate things. They're like the world and the language within the world are together. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And especially like with, um, Amal's kind of like when Amal's reality is breaking down and her thoughts kind of escape her head and they just kind of start following her around Carcosa. Like, uh, that, that is kind of like, I, yeah, that was in the scripting phase too. In the bird's maw. Oh, the bird thing. Don't. Oh, oh, my God. God. Don't. <laughs> yeah, that bird oh thing was, God. I saw that bird on Twitter and I was like, well, <laughs> I was like, well, I guess, <laughs> I guess I have to do this. <laughs> oh, my God. I love it so much. I love it so much. You know, and I, I, I was really moved. I, I think, Craig, you hit the nail on the head, that movement between Yasmin and Amal, that that shift. I totally thought it was going to be Yasmin's graphic novel for sure, but I thought that was a really clever way to introduce us to a therapist, right? Because mm-hmm. her world, Amal's world, is about trying to be good enough to be a therapist and to put her in a situation where it's her first time out of the gate and Whew, she's she is hitting those scripts, y'all. She is like, I got my script memorized, I got my worksheets, mm-hmm. and it's not enough. No. And that is that heartbreak. I just don't see therapists represented like so frequently. Therapists are a, a device, right? They're a way yes. for right. us to get some confessional things out. It's a way to provide a character with comfort. It's a way to look at the audience, the reader or the audience, and be like, we know this isn't okay, okay? Like we mm-hmm. know, but that's not what you did. You made her a, a person, and she yeah. has a whole rich life and a partner and a world and parents who are calling her, and it it just felt like we got to see her. As things were closing in. Yeah. And that made it so rich once they did. And we were like, oh, shit. Yeah. I think that, um, to be very real, I was dealing with very, 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 uh, like, I was having some real mental health struggles while working on this book. I think it's obvious. I (laughs) I think I had a friend who's a co-creator, literally. I, I think I jokingly was like, oh, yeah, I was having a nervous breakdown while writing that book. And then um, and they were like, oh, no, I know. That's obvious. <laughs> but like, girl, Thanks. save. And I was like, OK, well, <laughs> you didn't have to do that. <laughs> like, and, the, and they were like, yeah, I was reading it. It was like so relatable. And I was like, please, no. Ruthless. <laughs> like, not ruthless. This. I love it. Yeah, I, I feel like yeah. one of the parts that like, unexpectedly hit me more so than like even like the horror of it was like that moment of like Yasmin coming into the office and we're just going through like weeks of therapy with the same conversation happening essentially (laughs) and I was like Ah, oh god, oh god! My stomach is like twisting around and around because I know I spent like months doing this yeah. with multiple therapists. Where yes. it's just like you get to a point where it's like, yeah, I mean, and, and that's like the thing of like I I fully un- understand like that struggle of like Yasmin. Like I spent so long trying to find a therapist that I felt I could relate to on a deeper level beyond like the standard like mm-hmm. performance like diagnosis symptom bullshit like the you know here's a worksheet for you to deal with these like you know uh horrible, these the symptoms horrible and things happening like here's some, head, here's some coping mechanisms and yeah. it's like it's like okay but like it's so hard to find someone in the first place that like yeah. can relate to you beyond that surface level and then to have to put to put in all that work find someone and have like some hope and like expectation there and then to just like have that fall through and just be like okay well I guess this is like my last hope because this yeah. is the person that like if there's anyone out here that would be able to get this and be able to dig a little deeper it should be this person that I spent so much time researching, figuring out, like, how to get into this space with this person to help me. And it's not working. It's still yep. not working. Fuck. Yep. 
fuck. <laughs> like <laughs> that is no, you you completely that is Yasmin's entire arc. Yeah. Completely. One hundred fucking percent. That is yeah, you are right. Um and yes, this was definitely like a lot of the stuff in Where Black Stars Rise is one hundred percent percent inspired by my own by my own issues, obviously. Um uh the therapy thing, yeah, that has happened to me. I have spent like months and months putting in like good faith effort into therapists that I am doing my best, but I just, it's not working. And like, I, we kind of, I mean, Marie and I talked about that from the very beginning, like, you know, as, as two people with like mental health histories, especially Marie, um, in the sense of like someone who has been like, you know, deal, like dealing with systems for so long. Um, it's just like, sometimes when someone, you know, doesn't, you know, sometimes it just fucking sucks, man. It just, it just, it hurts in a different way. And it's, you know, when it doesn't work, it just really like, it really can hurt in a totally different way. And I haven't really, you know, we both talked about how we see therapy as like often the kind of end of a story of like, okay, mm. the character has decided to go to therapy right. and everything's <laughs> fine now because they talked to <laughs> one therapist who told them exactly what they needed to hear and was perfect. Like, no, okay. Finding a therapist, it's just like any other relationship, right? Is like, you have to find the right person and that takes trial and error. And honestly, the more issues you have, and I'm not even talking about mental health issues. I'm talking about just life issues. Yeah, like the more, marginalization. Yeah, like. the more <laughs> marginalizations you have, the harder it is to be like taken as a human. And, you know, my history with the mental health industry, like, you know, uh, th th there's a character, um, Amal's mentor in the book, Mr. B, is based off of a therapist that Marie had who was, you know, fantastic. And I'm like, and and that's like very, you know, that's incredible. And and actually, there was a detail that he he had like a million clocks that Marie included. That like this oh, is yeah. a thing that the real Mister B did. <laughs> um, and uh, but yeah, but like my history is very fraught. Like I have a, a history of like you know depression and self harm, and I have been forcibly committed. And I've had therapists who just just look at me, you know what I mean? Like, and it's like, and I had such a negative view of therapy as a result. And it took, and from like teenagehood into adulthood, I refused therapy. I refused everything because I was like, this is all bullshit. I've been through the system and I know it sucks. But that wasn't true. But the thing is, is it felt true. And then like, mm -hmm. when I was an adult looking for a therapist, I was almost shocked that that wasn't the end of the, my story. My end mm. of the end of my story wasn't. I oh have god, damn! I healed. wish it was. I wish right. it was. Yeah, I have healed <laughs> enough to finally go and find a therapist. <laughs> the end. No, like then and I now begins the, the next ten years of my and now, life. Yeah, and now begins me going to a therapist who sucks for six months. Yeah. Like, god, and I'm just like, old. you know what I mean? It's like, you know, like so. We wanted to talk about that. We wanted to talk about what happens when this relationship doesn't work out. Yeah. And I, I think that presenting the story from Amal's point of view is also amazing because, yeah, like like you said, the story is usually the, the person on the receiving end of mm -hmm. the therapeutic sessions. It, that, that's usually the who the story is about. Yeah. And I think that uh, particularly like with, um, you know, darker skin, black women in media, there is the, you know, the therapist representation, the therapist trope, whether mm -hmm. it be in an official capacity or whether it be as like the quote unquote sassy advice giving friend, you know, who yeah. just like has this preternatural uh, ability to Instinct give advice. to just yeah. kind of bring everything together <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the exact funny, but also very real moment, you know what right. I mean? And so yeah. it provides this like, perfect level of like dehumanization to like have this person just be put up as like the thing that like is just like you said it's a tool for the character's development yeah and so I think that having the therapist 
herself be the character in this. Like, it's just like, yeah, these people are also human. These people also have yeah. flaws and also have their own shit and also Issue. see their yeah. own therapists. Like, yes, 100. Yeah, Amal at the end, like, is not, yeah, is not in, Amal needs therapy at the end of this book. Yeah. <laughs> and she knows it. And who wouldn't? And who and wouldn't who in would her it? situation? And, and also, actually, gosh, that's so funny. I, you know, another thing that I guess I haven't mentioned, I did talk about a lot yet about where Black Stars Rise is how much, like, speaking of Easter eggs, God, how many, like, w- king in yellow and, like, Eldritch Easter eggs there are. Another reason that Amal is our main character is because specifically, like, in the vein of Hammers on Bone, you know, uh, the Ballad of Black Tom, I wanted to put a queer Arab woman in the hero's perspective of an eldritch horror story. Um, I, like, wanted to kind of, like, paint Arabness all over Carcosa, which, you know, Marie definitely did with, like, a ton of mosaic work and, like, the landscapes matching the landscapes of of Lebanon. In fact, uh, Amal Roberdine, her name, her last name is from the very first story where Carcosa is ever mentioned, which is an Ambrose Beer story called An Inhabitant of Carcosa, where the person who tells the story is Dr. Hassan um, uh, Robardine, I believe. Easter eggs on Easter. It's Easter eggs all the way down. I love yeah. it. Hello there, listeners. Did you know that we work on so many projects? Like, like so many. Pro- we work on so many projects. And did you know we have bonus content behind all of those projects? Uh, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. And if you didn't, you didn't know then that you can have access to all of those bonus projects by joining us at patreon.com slash queerspec. Join us for as little as $2 a month to get full access to all 126 at the time of recording this promo, back episodes, and more to come. You can join us at patreon.com slash queerspec. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
you know what? I remember when you were first talking about Black, where Black Stars Rise, and I was like, wow, I can't wait to see this horror side of Nadia because you you lit up. And you light up about Squire. Like, let's be real. They're both incredible. They're just really different. <laughs> I, um, I like books. <laughs> you, I, I don't believe that. That doesn't seem like you to me. Yeah. <laughs> But I was really, I was really moved in in where Black Stars Rise by the way that you you talked to us about King in Yellow and sort of wanting to bring these different layers to this story that is deeply modern, though, right? Like all yes. the context until we go into Carcosa is, you know, it's it's our modern world, and we see graffiti, and we see trash, and we see a city alive mm-hmm. and rich, and and honestly, talking to a ball, you know? Yes. Like, that is so cool. And it feels like, it feels like so right to have this story be about these two people, more so than anyone else, though, you know, we've got lots of great side characters that I really enjoyed because <laughs> they're sort of different sides of the same coin. And, and yes. um, this might be a little bit of a spoiler. So if you're like, you know what? I don't want to hear anymore. I got to go read Where Black Stars Rise. Come back and pick up here. There's this moment where Amal is in Carcosa. She's face-to-face with Yasmin. And, mm-hmm. uh, well, I don't even know if you'd call that face-to-face, given the size difference. No, but... She's <laughs> looking at uh, face Yasmin. Face-to-presence. <laughs> like, face-to-presence. She's gazing upward. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and Yasmin is saying, you couldn't even relate to me because if you could relate to a schizophrenic, what does that make you? Mm-hmm. Are yeah. you as crazy as me? And it was also earlier when she's when she's first upset, but Yasmin says, the focus is always on my symptoms. You're not mm-hmm. talking to me. And and I thought that it, it clicked for me in that moment how brilliant it was to do a, I would say a critique, but like a loving critique of therapy through a therapist's lens because she mm-hmm. gets all the nuance. It'd be really easy to or maybe it wouldn't be easy. I don't know. I, I could see a very black and white version from Yasmin's view of where we all come out going like, therapy sucks. But yeah. <laughs> you push yourself to, it sounds like, and you'll have to tell me where I'm off, to to hold that tension. So it isn't that therapy's good or therapy's no. bad. It's, it's like any other tool. Yes, 100%. No, it's definitely like, therapy like requires like every other relationship kind of maintenance on both ends. And that's like, that's hard. <laughs> you know, that's hard work. And mm. sometimes it's like when we talked about Yasmin, like, you know, how much work has to be done. And especially, you know, a thing that was very important when talking about Yasmin to both Marie and I was that Yasmin is like, one, she's she's calm. She's like very like, she's like, she's telling you what's happening. She's like, this is actually happening, but you have in your own mind kind of already discredited her because of what like books say about these, these symptoms. But like, that's not how, you know, people are not like that. You know what I mean? You cannot simply classify people and classify what's happening with them. And the history of therapy and psychology and mental illness backs you up. (laughs) Yes, exactly. To that point, like I was actually uh, reading the the blog post. Essentially, yeah. There's so much that was clicking in terms of like, so it's like essentially talking about like white men, like these like racist, xenophobic, misogynistic white men, you know, writing about like the horror of an uncaring universe, where yeah. it's like this is not something that marginalized people have to imagine, like the the level this, of yeah. just like the systems in place and the world around you like doesn't give a fuck whether you live or die. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then also like the not being believed. And so I, I just like so much of this, I was like, <laughs> just like thinking about as I, so I was thinking about this as I was like, kind of like scrolling through like Twitter last night too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, you know, there's like this, like, this is why I don't like necessarily really relate to like white nihilism stories. Like there's so many stories of like nihilism that are just like, yeah. Oh, like nothing matters, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I think that, um, who is, I think like the Coen brothers do a lot of that. And mm-hmm. it's just like, I get why it's appealing. It's not really my vibe. Like, it's just like, <laughs> okay, that's cool. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, like, the thing is, is that, like, Yasmin already knows the world is uncaring, and as, like, a queer, disabled, you know, Middle Eastern woman, she's like, 
the kid, the world already doesn't give a fuck whether I live or die and probably is actively trying to kill me a little bit. Um, but you should care. Right. Like I needed this from you. Like, and you did not give it because you were looking at me through their eyes, through the eyes of like doctors who don't look at me as a person. Like, fuck your training. Damn. You know? Yeah. And bring it back to Empire. You're looking at me through the lens of Empire. 100. No, yeah. You're looking at me through the lens of Empire. And Amal is looking at herself through the lens of, you know, in Carcosa, she's looking at herself through the lens of of the her guide who, you know, takes on the shape of Lovecraft, Ambrose Bierce, and, and uh, Robert Chambers just because we, Marie and I both have issues with them. Right. <laughs> and we, and we can. <laughs> and we can, perfect. so we will. Um, but yeah, so like, yeah, like Amal is seeing herself through these eyes, you know, and now, and, and is like degrading under their gaze. You know what I mean? Um, and, and that is what she did to Yasmin. Yes. I, I, and I, I love the last paragraph of that blog post, too, where it's saying, you know, most of all, I love that in horror, our storytellers are always right. They're never believed. They're cast aside and undermined and left to face the cosmic cruelty alone. But they aren't wrong. And by the merit of their narrative, our performers, we believe them in that short burst of time. I want to write that feeling into being. I want to be believed. Like, that was just like sitting like shivers because it is, oh God, that's so indicative of like marginalized people's experience Mm -hmm. of like, I am telling you what is wrong. I am telling you what I'm experiencing. And like the world that whole, the people that like, you know, have power in those systems, like the people that like, you know, are able to like navigate and benefit from those systems with like little resistance are like, no, it can't be that bad. Or you're overreacting. You're just too sensitive. Like, and it's like, no, I am facing like terror on a daily basis of like being bombarded with like, you know, images of like, you know, black and brown people being like murdered at the hands of the state with like no repercussion and like no sense of like, like relief, for me as like, you know, and so it's like, yeah, I'm experiencing these horrors on a daily basis, but I'm just supposed to go about my life. Like nothing is happening. And if I talk to someone about it, it's like, Oh, well, like it'll be fine. It'll all work out. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. like, (laughs) so it's like that whole blog. Like these problems (laughs) are real and bigger, like way too big. Like they're real and big and we are so small. We are so small. What is like, what is not cosmic horror? If not that. Right. And that's why like, yeah, this is like I I you know, as much as I can, I was like this is like, you know, brown cosmic horror. Like I am trying to like I am trying to stand up with everybody else who's doing shit that I love and be like, here's here's why this works for us. Here's why the framing works even if the f- creators of that framing didn't intend it for us. We can do it better than them because we understand this more than they ever did. Right. You know. Um so like yeah, I I am I yes, Victor Laval is better than HP Lovecraft. <laughs> like he, oh, yeah. like you don't have to you know, undeniably, you know what I mean? I'm just like that's kind of and I and I say that like I'm I'm trying not even being flippant because the the dedication in um in in Victor Laval's book is to HP Lovecraft with all my conflicted feelings and I'm like that's so real. Like that's so real when you see something, when you see someone who sees you, right? When you see cosmic horror and you're like, oh, yeah, fuck yeah. Like, that is it. That is my experience. And then you look at them and they're all like, no, you're not a person. Right. It's like it does something to you. You you think you like, you take that on. You know what I mean? And you can't forget it. Yeah. So like, and that's, you know, so that's kind of why I'm I'm so happy to see like more and more people taking on cosmic horror and kind of flipping it on its head and being like, no. We are we are rewriting what you think about when you think about cosmic horror. I've I've always come from more of like the you know the the fantasy background, mm-hmm. and it's very similar in terms yes. of. I just feel like there's such a limited imagination that a lot of white people have when it comes to, uh, and especially like you know cishet white people like and cishet male white people have when it comes to imagining these alternate realities when they incorporate elements of, you know, 
like oppression or yes. yeah or like or yeah or when they when they're ele- when they're when they're trying to perceive like a world where it's like oh well like what if I was even it's someone so, who could yeah. who could yeah. uh you know be affected by uh you know systemic oppression like yeah what, what if what I, if I? Was oppressed <laughs> and, 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 no, but the thing that's funny about that is like I if th- this world currently serves you you are not going to write a fiction with a different system of the world because you can't imagine, not only can you not imagine it, why would you? This is already the best system for you. So why would you not perpetuate it it into forever? But the thing is, is that when you perpetuate our systems into fiction, into fantasy, into sci-fi, into everything, what you are uninherently made to believe is that like, this is the way the world always will be and always has to be when actually not at all. You know, so that is why, yeah, we need more creative. You're so right. We need more creative world building. I did also, uh, (laughs) I just remembered because I talked about Victor Laval's dedication. I did dedicate Where Black Stars Rise to the figure at the edge of my bed. And that was real. I did notice that. The thing that I I wanted to say kind of as a little fun tidbit is that um, I had night sleep paralysis, night terrors, almost like every night from like age five to like age 20. Whoa. Yeah. So like a lot of those sleep paralysis scenes are are, are directly from uh yeah. from <laughs> from my my experiences. As someone who hasn't experienced it, I definitely felt pulled in and absorbed by the by the it by felt the real. Scene. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I was like this is real this is real freaky, real freaky deaky. Um you know what I we don't have a ton more time, so if it yes. you all will take us back if you need to wherever we need to go. I was like, well, when when do I have you know two other non-binary people in a room? And it's like never. So let's do this. Um, I want to talk about some of the non-binary aspects of your writing and and your career. And I'm you know I think I mostly have co- like curiosities, but I'm going to start with. I have one that I saw, and you're going to tell me if I'm wrong. So mm-hmm. something that I think makes where black stars rise so unique in horror is so often horror relies on the dark, right? Like shadows, like, mm-hmm. oh, the bad things come from that. And you obviously you and Marie play with, with the dark and the light, but light is what's standing at the end of Yasmin's bed. Light is what brings them forward. And so to flip us and say, no, we're not going to, it's not going to be the binary of dark or light. And it's not that light, good, dark, bad. It's that Dark and light can both be bad and they can mm-hmm. both be good. And sometimes these things that we think of, especially, you know, it's a, another way of coded white supremacy, right? Is that dark is bad. And yeah. that, that to flip that and say like, okay, what if the light is terrifying? I found that so exciting. And yes, I projected onto you that that's part of like your non-binary lens, but I would love to hear any thoughts you have about A, the light, but then B, just like how being non-binary infuses your work or and if you're like, I hate that question, then we'll just cut it from the oh, recording. Oh, no. I mean, one, you make, God, that's so, you make me sound so much smarter than I am, other than the uh, the night terror in my experience was made of light. <laughs> well, like, the thing is, they, they weren't always made of oh, light. Oh, that's so scary. But, but like, sometimes they were. And, like, that's the thing is that, like, um, yeah, that would, gosh, I really wish I thought of that. You can totally say that I thought of that. Um, but, yeah, but I'm like, going to. I'm going to tell my friends. I'm going to be like, yeah, yeah, this yeah, book's but, really but, important yeah. for... <laughs> I think for, for me, like, one, I think that I inherently, all of my characters are queer to me, whether or not they're in queer relationships. Um, like, they're just, like, I write them from that perspective. Like, I I feel that they are queer, even if they are, like canonical characters who I do not own. It's like when I'm writing them, I feel that. So I would say that that's kind of the more, the most, like I feel it in kind of the way they interact with each other. I feel it in the way that I view community and view relationships. Like, and I I feel it in the way that like, yeah, I never want to punish any of my characters for being kind of gendered in any way. Um, Like uh, in Squire, like, Actually, it's funny because when we were pitching Squire, um, it was mentioned that like, oh my gosh, like it's so cool that you like, it's you know, even the word brave was used about like, oh, you know, like the, your characters are not like particularly like the, you know, like you've got a buff, masculine, 
girl and like a really like skinny kind of like femme boy. And I was like, I'm not, and, and they're not like, it's never brought up. And I'm like, yeah, why would it be? Like, if I'm creating this world, why would I create a punishing world for for like fake gender rules? Yeah. That's stupid. <laughs> yeah, you said what you had to say in the character design, right? Like, that's Basically. where it is. Yeah. Basically. So it's kind of like that where I kind of try to, like, I think that just inherently, like, queerness is that it's not like a thing that is like unpunishable, you know? Like, obviously, Amal has a very complicated relationship with her mm-hmm. mom regarding her queer her partner because that's very real um and I want that to be noticed but I guess I just like yeah I feel like I am queer and so in a way all of my characters are kind of right written through like somewhat of a queer perspective you know Nadia though it does that makes perfect sense to me and I I do feel like it's that's why I was like I don't know how to ask this question except to be like let's talk about some non-binary shit um Mm -hmm. because it's it's so integral to the very fabric of the stories, your your identities, obviously your many, many identities, but also just like the way that you create your characters and they're not stereotypes of what men are or stereotypes of what women are or stereotypes of what queer people are. You know, they're they're lived in, they're they're real. And Craig, I'd love to hear any thoughts you have, of course, but to me that that it always feels distinctly like, oh, I'm reading a queer narrative. I remember talking about that with Squire and being like, hey, did I notice this? And you were like, yes, you did. And, you know, cute yeah, little 100%. attraction moments. And in this, it felt like it, it's what makes that failure on Amal's part have all the weight. Is that Yasmin is like, you should get it if anybody does. Like Craig had said earlier. And that devastation actually feels like a sort of queer form of devastation. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's something like special, special pain when someone that you expect to understand you because they're coming from the same place you are doesn't. Mm, I think that like, and I, but I think that that's true. I think that that's a thing that we have to learn is that like, even when we're forming our own communities, not all relationships are going to work just because someone's like us. Oh, yeah. And that can feel like such a personal failure. I mean, there's definitely a, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I call it like an aphorism or like a proverb, you know, within the Black community. And it's just like, you know, all skin folk ain't kin folk. And it's just like, yeah, not everyone that looks like you, not even everyone that shares your same experience is going to be someone that is, uh, you know, that you're in community with. You know, that's that like everyone that you everyone that like, you know, just because you have some shared experiences and you have some shared features doesn't mean that that person is um, going to necessarily understand you or where you're coming from or want to in in a lot of cases. Um, And I think that this really I don't know, I I really love like the way that this story ends for Yasmin and Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, can we talk about, can we spoil the Yeah, yeah, we already (laughs) gave the spoiler warning, spoil away. Um, So it actually reminded me of um, another recent queer story, which was uh, the uh, episode three of The Last of Us, which have either of you seen that? I have not. Okay. Uh, well, I will. I will not spoil that episode, but I will say I do love the fact that um, something that could be perceived as like tragedy by a lot of people. For me, it was actually um, like really like beautiful because totally it is beautiful. like the character's choice to like stay where they are and to say, you know. Yeah, the, I'm gonna make I, a choice. I, I'm, not, I'm not having yeah. night terrors here. Like I'm not. Mm. I'm, I can, I don't have to like watch the door uh, yeah. here. Like yeah. I can just. I can just be here. And so, yeah. like to have like a character make that choice that, like you know, for most people would seem like you know maybe giving up or would maybe seem like um, you know a tragic ending. Like honestly, to me, it was like no. This this actually reads as like. You know, like in a world where, you know, like you said, the the cosmic terrors, the uncaring universe, like in a world where like I can find some level of peace somewhere and I found that place. Yeah, I'm going to stay here. Like, I, it's like Yasmin doesn't have anyone else, like doesn't have like family out in the world. Like the like all all she really had was like her work. And so it was just like, yeah, like. I'm just going to stay here and I'm going to, I'm going to vibe. I'm going to (laughs) chill. I mean, the thing is, is that like the systems of the both worlds are not designed to be kind to her. So what does it matter anyway? Right. And so in a way that's like, 
tragic, but in a way it's also like, I don't know. It's real. Sometimes, you you got to find some peace. You got to find some level of peace. You know, sometimes working to like just, just working on is just, it's too much. You know, you just got to turn into a rock on the sea sometimes. <laughs> okay. Everything I mean, ever, listen, if I could turn into a mountain right now. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. That's so real. Oh my God. I'm sorry, Dual. friends. I'd be gone. <laughs> I'd be like, look, I'm a mountain. <laughs> like that would be The ocean hit tickled my little feet. (laughs) That's what it'd be like, I assume. I I mean, yeah, she's sipping a cocktail. She's doing great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, the last, like, I wanted to tell this last funny little story about where Black Stars Rise, which is like, um, I was writing a scene with the door, like the early scenes with um, the door, the college, the thing in college with the door, Yasmin and her fixation on the door. That is a real fixation that I have. Um, and, uh, as I was writing it, I looked up and I saw the door cracked exactly as I had described. And I couldn't remember if I had done that or not. And I was sitting there just Mm -mm. like, Mm -mm. I'm just terrified. And I was so angry at myself because I was like, you wrote this. You literally scared yourself. You absolutely dared yourself. You ding dong. I love it. That's, and that's when you know you nailed something, right? When you give yourself the feeling you're trying to elicit and you're like, oh man, this is scary. Yeah, they're like, oh God, did I do that? Did I do that? Who did that? The last thing I was going to say is that I think the connecting thread between all, the final connecting thread between, you know, after this conversation between Squire and where Black Stars Rise is that it is ultimately about like marginalized people in a system that is meant to divide them, mm. um, trying to reach each other, you know. Another great summary. And we're just going to end the interview there. Just kidding. Um, Nadia, <laughs> you are such a delight. Every time I get to talk to you, I'm like, my mind is blown. I feel like my heart grows a size. I'm nicer to Thank myself you. after. Aww. I'm like, Nadia would want me to heal, um, which maybe is just I me do. projecting onto her. Okay, great. I'm like, no, see daisy I'm projecting. <laughs> um, and, you know, Craig, God, you have such great questions, such great insight. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, to to be involved, get to spend time with you. And I just can't wait for us to do this again soon. I know that there's going to be reasons yes. and I, I cannot wait. You two are an absolute delight. Thank you for spending our 150th episode with us and helping us celebrate all the great conversations we've had and to make this one extra NB. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Nadia. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited. Um, I love reading your work, and uh, I definitely um, look forward to reading Squire as well. I'll definitely be checking yes, that out. Yes, it's. I, I'm glad you're a fantasy fan. I think you'll like it. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was so nice to talk to you both as well, Craig. You had some like amazing insights, and uh, it's always time. It's always a great time to be here. I will be on anytime you call. Okay, well, I'm going to hold you to that. Um, Nadia, <laughs> if folks want to find you online or want to learn more about Where Black Stars Rise, where can they head? So Where Black Stars Rise can be found anywhere books are sold. Um, and um, right now, I haven't figured out where I am on social media, but I spend the most time on Instagram, which is just Nadia Shames, at Nadia Shames, N-A-D-I-A-S-H-A-M-M-A-S. And that, you know, whether I return to Twitter or not is still a mystery. <laughs> Will there be a Twitter to return to? Who knows? Every yeah, day is a question. <laughs> like, <laughs> yep. And then Craig, if folks want to follow you, if if you've got any for us, where would you like them to go? Uh, let's see. For my uh, unhinged queer chaos, um, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Catharticus. Um, that's just the word cathartic with us. Sounds like Spartacus. Um, <laughs> and then uh, for uh, random selfies and food pics uh, of things that I cook. <laughs> it's for days. Like you've always got something gorgeous on. And beautiful tattoos. I, mean, I guess I'm just pitching your Instagram to everybody <laughs> yeah. now. Uh, my, I mean, it's working for me. I'm going. <laughs> uh, my Instagram is Craig Narok. So that's just my name, Craig uh, with Narok at the end, sounds like Ragnarok. Um, I love yeah. it. Um, <laughs> if you didn't have a pen, don't worry, listeners. All that, plus the episodes that Craig and Nadia have been on in the past, are in the show notes. Go check them out. Go follow Craig. Go follow Nadia. Sarah and Monica, we love you. Happy packing. Hope you're hanging in there. Kate, thank you for making us sound good. Listeners, we could be here without you, but wouldn't that be awkward? I think it would be. And patrons, please don't leave us. 
and we love you all. Have a great day. You're listening to Bitches on Comics, distributed by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Find more shows like Bitches on Comics by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. Thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at at bitchesoncomics and on Instagram at at bitchesoncomics. Our website is, brace yourself, bitchesoncomics.com. If you go there, you can listen to any of our episodes. And we've got other shit that we put on tabs. I don't remember what it is. I am in charge of updating the website, however, so good luck. (laughs) Thanks for the heads up. I'll go to this website now. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support the podcast by joining us on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash queerspec to learn more. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. I'm Monica Estrella and you can find me at www.audreysrevenge.com or on Twitter at Audrey Revenge. Witches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey folks, I'm Yen. And I'm Nat. And we're the hosts of Comic Sans, the podcast about comics for those who are sans knowledge. Comic Sans is a show for people who know nothing about comics, like me. And people who love them, like me, and want to learn more about them. What makes you an authority on comic books? I read them, write them, live them, breathe them. What makes you the authority on knowing nothing? Honestly, Yen, two seasons in, I actually know a little more than I used to. You're welcome. The reason for that is that every episode, I make Nat read one of my favorite comics, like Daredevil Saga or This One Summer. And then he tells me what makes that comic so special. And then I hear what Nat thinks, and I try to avoid a pulmonary embolism. While I actively try to give him one. You can listen to the second season of Comic Sans now. With new episodes every two weeks. Wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Yen, I think I know so much about comics now that this might have to be our last season. Nat, there will forever be more comic than you will ever know. What does that even mean? I don't know. It sounds profound, though. Right?